What is this great conversation you're about to hear? Hello everyone, this is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. I'm an online event planner that supports artists' work from all over the world. They create the product. I help organize and execute a memorable event on social media for their fans, family members, and friends. In addition, I host surprise events where online friends and I examine an artist or band's work. Sometimes we're able to get special guests to join us and share a few tales of their own. It's a rockin' good conversation. What do the Banksy walking tour, hot air balloon manufacturing, and massive attack all have in common? They come from the great place of Bristol, England. But let's not forget about a wonderfully talented author, journalist, and editor, Jane Duffus. You may be familiar with her books, such as The Women Who Built Bristol, Volumes 1 and 2, elegantly understated 175 years of the Fears Watch Company, and the What the Frock book of funny women. Well, she has a brand new book out called These Things Happen, the story of Sarah Records. It's a voluminous and creative opus that shines historical light on the famous independent record label that placed Bristol on the map from 1987 to 1995. In this conversation, you'll hear Jane speak about early inspirational literature experiences, writing practices, appreciation for Sarah founders Matt Haynes and Claire Wad, the city of Bristol, and a whole lot more. So, grab yourself a drink, have a seat, sit back, and enjoy our discussion about life as an author and a book that is a must-read for all lovers of music and the highs and lows of running a music label. It's a page-turner that constantly pops with jingle jangle prose. Hello, everyone. This is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page, Sunday, October 22nd. Cloudy morning here in the Bay Area, 10 o'clock. I have a very special guest here, a writer, author, a journalist, you name it. Jane Duffus, thank you for coming here. I believe you have a brand new book to celebrate. Welcome. I absolutely do. Thank you. I do have a lovely, big, new, brand new, enormous book to celebrate. Isn't it big? I felt it yeah, ought to congr- come with instructions. I felt it needed to have come with instructions on how to safely lift it without causing any damage. <laughs> like bend the knees, keep the back straight. But uh, That someone... thing is a brick. It is. There. And I want to know real quickly before we really launch into some of these questions I have for you. Now that it's hatched out into the world what kind of response feedback have you been getting this makes me sound like an idiot but it's been really (laughs) lovely and I feel like I feel like that's a really un-British immodest thing to say (laughs) but like even just oh god people have been sending me such nice messages and I'm just looking at my phone here I had this message a couple of hours ago and it's just like it, the headline is "These Things Happen." A thank you, and it guy, and it's from this guy who I don't know, and he says, "I'm currently about 155 pages into These Things Happen. Just wanted to say thank you." Um, I read a lot of books. Not many of them have me make me leap around the room, smiling like a loon, happy as yours does. Thank you. It's just brilliant. It's like bloody hell. What a nice thing for someone to sit down and write. And he goes on and on for ages. And I've actually, which is just amazing i've had quite a lot of messages like that whether they're emails or on social media or whatever and it's just like wow go let's go back a little bit and learn about kind of your love for literature okay tell so us, this is like um, therapy we're going back to childhood okay <laughs> <laughs> tell us when that came about for you when you uh literature really spoke to you I've always loved books. I've always loved reading. I've always loved stories. I guess I'm very lucky that um, I come from a family that was surrounded by books. I have three older brothers, so we already had all of their books in the house. My parents always read to us when we were little. They would you know, sit by your bed and read you a story as you're getting ready to go to sleep. And then when you get a bit older and you can read books yourself, there was you know, constant trips to the library to get lots of new books and find new authors and get stuck into stories. I loved English classes at school. I loved making up stories. I loved, you know, writing short stories. You know, I was that classic geeky, nerdy kid who surrounded myself with Millie Molly Mandy and uh, all those kind of books and loved the kind of adventure and escapism and Enid Blyton and all that kind of stuff. Loved it. 
Was there a childhood hood book that really aroused you in a way that you're like, wow, this is, I could read this over and over again. Uh, my ultimate comfort book is a book called The Family from One End Street by a woman called Eve Garnett. And my mom gave me this book because it was her own book that she had read when she was a kid. So it still had, um, the price on the front was in shillings because it was so old. <laughs> And it was very tatty because she'd read it as a kid. And I think I was going through an anxious phase for something. And she said, oh, this is a really nice, comforting book. And I loved it. And it's set in, you know, early, early 1900s London. It's about a very poor family with lots of kids and the adventures and scrapes that they get up to, whether it's, you know, trying to cobble, trying to begging outside so they can go to the cinema to go to, to a film one afternoon and, and they cobble together the pennies to go and buy a bun so they can eat their chocolate bun in the cinema or, um, you know, going to someone's birthday party at a posh house or having a day out at the sea. And, it's, you know, this is a world that was way before my time. You know, I was a kid in the 1980s and this was back in, I don't know, the 1900s, this is set. But I just loved the magic of it. And over the years, whenever I've been having a difficult time for whatever reason or not been feeling well or unhappy about something, that's my comfort book. And it's the same the same copy of the book so it's still it's held together by lots of sellotape now that I have to keep reapplying because it dries up and peels off because it's still my mom's book from the 1940s or 50s when she was a kid so wow. that's that's my comfort book I can think of literature um, books where I truly connected to the protagonist or antagonist in the book that you just spoke about was there a character that really speaks to your heart or you can choose from another book. Well, I mentioned Millie Molly Mandy earlier and <laughs> Millie Molly Mandy was this too good to be true uh, little girl from probably a similar kind of era. I'm not sure when she was set. And she just had these really wholesome adventures. She lived on a nice farm somewhere in England with, you know, her parents and her grandparents and her uncle and auntie. And they all lived together. And then she had her friends, Billy Blunt and little friend Susan. And they all had these really wholesome adventures where they would go fishing or they would camp out in a field and they would go and collect milk or something really wholesome. But I loved Millie Molly Mandy. You know, she was nauseatingly good, nauseatingly, you know, everything was perfect. And she always did the right thing. You know, she never did anything naughty. But I loved her. And the books came with all these little illustrations that I just used to love colouring in, which in hindsight is really wicked, isn't it? You shouldn't colour in books. Uh, tell me about an experience you had with writing uh, where a teacher, you know, gave you some support or you learned something from their feedback, anything to do with that? Well, I was, I would say I was probably the world's worst student at school. If you were a teacher and you had me in your class, you'd probably think, oh God, this child is such a nightmare. And as such, I don't really remember any of my teachers with any fondness and, um, or warmth, except for Mrs. Dorr. I loved Mrs. Dorr. She was great. I had Mrs. Dorr when I was about seven years old, so I was quite young, but she seemed to really enjoy teaching, unlike most teachers who just seemed very jaded and just kind of were going through the motions. She seemed to really throw herself into it, and she seemed invested in the kids and like our own individual personality. She didn't just treat us. And even at seven, you could realize this. She recognized the things that made us individual people. And she worked on that and she tried to highlight those. And I think kids recognize that even when they're little and they respect that and they respect someone who respects them. You know, you get what you're given. And so Mrs. Dorr stands out as a good teacher. She would do fun things and she was very creative. It was a lot of hands-on making, sewing, stitching, gluing, making projects, making scrapbooks and sticking things in and going home when you'd be given tasks of like finding I don't know different things that correlated to this particular task or project and you'd bring them back and you'd stick them in and you'd write a story about them whatever and she made it fun which um, I'm sorry to say most teachers I had did not. <laughs> in your childhood experiences um, other than your interest for writing and literature were there other things that you gravitated towards like dancing or playing an instrument? Well, I played the piano very badly. 
Uh, I would never have made it into a band. I would never have been welcomed into any band on several records. Uh, so I played the piano very badly. I largely played the piano because <laughs> I told someone this recently, because I was talking about why I'm a terrible swimmer. I can just about swim from one side of a pool to another, but in a crisis scenario, I would drown. And the reason for this is that at my school, we had an outside swimming pool that was not heated. And I live in England and it was freezing for like 11 and a half months of the year. That pool was unbearably cold. And if you learnt an instrument, it was felt at a school that the lessons that could be sacrificed that were not important were sports lessons. And so I learnt the piano because it meant that I didn't have to go to swimming lessons. And that's why I'm a terrible swimmer. I'm not a good pianist either. But I'm probably a better pianist than I am a swimmer. And at least it meant I was warm and dry indoors. When did you realize that your writing was beginning to have an effect on people? I don't know that I've ever realized my writing was having an effect on people. I've been told, um, you know, I would win prizes at school for like essay writing prizes, or I would always win the English prize every year at the annual prize giving at the end of class. And then when I got older, um, I would write articles for, you know, little newspapers or whatever, and they would get in. And you knew, I think you know if you're good at something or you're not, you know. I mean, I, I've i tried very hard to play the guitar, for instance. I wanted to be a guitarist. I thought that would be super cool. But I am not a guitarist. I am not good at I can hold a guitar and play a few chords, but I am not good at playing the guitar. And that is a big difference. No matter how hard I try, it's just not in me. I don't have that gene. Um, whereas... I, I think I am good at writing and I know that I am not good at writing about everything, but I'm good at writing about lots of things, things that I like. Um, and again, not everybody is. Lots of people can want to write, but that doesn't mean that they should. Just as like lots of people can be in a band, but it doesn't necessarily mean they should be. Um, anyone could do anything, but it doesn't mean they should. Um, and so, yeah, I always enjoyed writing. I always knew that was what I wanted to do. And I've been lucky to kind of stick to that and follow it in various different directions. But ultimately, the various things that I've done throughout my life have been one way or another been connected to writing and editorial work. And it's just what I love doing. As I say, I don't know if I've ever been aware of making an impact on someone. Although the thing that stands out, I used to work for a magazine called OK in England, which is, I don't know if you have it over there, but it's a celebrity weekly gossip magazine. And it's it's quite low brow, but it's pretty trashy. It's lots of, you know, you've had a baby. Great. We're going to come around and do a nice glossy photo shoot in your house with you posing in ridiculous clothes that you wouldn't normally wear and interview about you about your baby, that kind of thing. Or go to weddings, you know, celebrity weddings of people who are in a soap opera, that kind of thing. And uh, I remember sitting on the tube in London when I used to live and work in London. And I looked over. This was in the days before mobile phones and everyone now would just be sat staring at their phone. And uh, and I looked at the woman next to me and I realized that she was reading OK Magazine. And she was not only reading it, but she was reading an article that I had written. And that's exciting. That's only ever happened to me once. I've never seen anyone read my book on a train or anything like that. But uh, seeing that woman on the tube reading, I can't even remember what article it was, but reading my article in the magazine, I was like, I really wanted to nudge her and go, I wrote that, but I didn't because I'm British. <laughs> so with regards to your style of writing, uh, how has it evolved over time? Where have you seen like mm, stylistically improvements? Where have you felt like, okay, I really got a really solid grip on this particular skill within my writing? I think a lot of people, I'm, I mean, punctuation is very subjective, but punctuation, if you use it properly, can make a massive difference. Punctuation is something that the reader shouldn't really be aware of. But if you're reading something and you're aware of the punctuation, it probably means that the writer has used it incorrectly because you have, as a reader, you're having to stop and think, oh, hang on, why have they done that? Or is that really how you use a semicolon? And so on. Um but it is incredibly subjective. And for instance, you know, my husband, 
has a very, very different take. You know, he has a PhD. He's a very smart guy, but he has a very different take on punctuation to me. You know, he proves my books, proofs my books before they're finished, as do other people. And he constantly tells me I'm using commas all wrong. And I tell him that he does when I read stuff that he's written. But I don't think it matters, which is why I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong way to do stuff. But as long as you do it in a way that doesn't impact the reader negatively, I think that's the key. And that wasn't necessarily what you asked me. Um, so how does my style of writing now differ to then? I think, like anything, the more you do something, the more you mature and get better at it, hopefully. Yeah. Um, maybe you get worse at it. I don't know. But hopefully you should get better. Like anything, do it more and you improve. Really nicely into this next question. In terms of punctuation and those aspects to writing, uh, tell me a little bit about your work habits. My work habits. I am, I've got to the point in life where I am a cantankerous old madam and I don't like being told what to do. So I don't have a routine of any kind, shape or form. This, I'm currently seated, seated at my desk where I write and work, but I have only recently, I'd say in the last couple of years, gravitated to work at a desk. I used to sit on the sofa over there or on the floor with my laptop and have terrible achy back and stuff and wonder why. And it'd be like, well, because you don't sit at a desk properly. That's probably got something to do with it. But, um, but now I sit at my desk and I have my drink and I get through gallons of Diet Coke every day. I'm a terrible person for that. And I can't do anything before 12 o'clock in the morning. I cannot, I don't think so in the mornings, I never do writing unless I really, really have to or have a very strict deadline because my brain doesn't work that way. So I do other stuff that doesn't really require brain power. I go for a run or I go to the supermarket or I, you know, do tasks that don't require a lot of thinking. And then in the 12 o'clock onwards and into the evenings, you know, I'm happy to work until midnight or whenever. That's great. My brain is alive by then. But in the mornings, it takes my brain a very, very long time to wake up. So I don't do work then. But also, I don't have, like, I remember Roald Dahl had this. I remember seeing an interview with Roald Dahl and he was saying, okay, he goes to his desk and he writes from, say, nine o'clock in the morning until lunchtime. And then he has a break and then he comes back and he works until five o'clock and he very much treated it like a job. And I, I couldn't do that. If I'm sitting at my desk and I'm thinking, oh, nothing's happening nothing's happening I'll go and do something else and I'll come back to it tomorrow or the next day because unless you've got a really strict deadline um what's the point what's the point of writing rubbish um no, I mean I always listen to music while I'm working I always you know as you you know you can't write a book about a record label and not be interested in music <laughs> um, so I always have music and not necessarily Sarah Records music but all kinds of music um I have very uh, wide-ranging tastes as we all do um so, yes, I always have music on. I pretty much always have my dog in the room with me because she is my constant companion. And, um, yeah, what else? I don't try and force it. I do find sometimes, I think the first line of anything is always the trickiest. Like the opening intro to a paragraph, to a, to a chapter or to a book is the hardest. Because if, say, you, someone picks your book up in a shop, I mean, you've done it yourself. You're standing in a bookshop, you pick something up because the cover or the title appeals to you. You don't really know anything about it. So you're standing there in the bookshop and you hold it and you kind of, you looked at the back and that's interested you enough to turn to the front page and then maybe you stand in the shop and you read the first few lines to see if you like the style or if, you know, that you think this is something you might enjoy reading. And so I think that's a really important thing to get right. And I think a lot of people probably do that. And so you want to make sure that your impact is good. And so writing the first few, I can't even remember now what the first few lines of this are. Well, they might be terrible. What did I say? <laughs> yeah, they're not brilliant, actually. It's not that inspiring. But also, I think with this book, you're not going to pick up a book about Sarah Records unless you already know that you like Sarah Records and want to read a book about it. So perhaps that's not the greatest example. Fun. Uh, what advice would you give to aspiring writers? I would say... What age is this aspiring writer? I was asked this recently by someone who was 10, which was quite a uh, quite a question and responsibility. I used to get this quite a lot. When I lived in London and was working for these magazines and I used to get taxis around the place. And often, you know, you're in a you're in a black cab in London and the driver starts talking to you. It's like, oh, what do you do? Where are you going? And I quickly learned not to tell them what I did. 
But initially, before I learned that, I used to say, oh, I'm a journalist. Oh, I'm going from here. I'm interviewing this person. I'm doing whatever. And then they would often say, oh, my son's just going to university and he wants to be a, a journalist. What should he do? And you'd be like, oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> and it depends. I remember when I did my journalism training and there were about 25 of us on this class. And we were all on the first morning. We were all sat around this kind of like horseshoe shaped table. And the, uh, the guy leading the session kind of went around and he said, I asked each of us in turn what kind of journalist we wanted to be. And the majority of people said they wanted to write for the music press or they wanted to write about sports, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and he just instantly said, nope, not going to happen. Because you know, that's what everyone wants to do. Everyone wants to write about, everyone wants to write for the enemy, as this was back in the day, because we're talking like 25 years ago. Or everyone wants to write about football because those are the things that everybody loves and people want to do it. But it doesn't necessarily matter if you're any good at it, it's who you know. And that's the thing that's really frustrating. Um, you can be good at it and work your way up, but chances are that the people who get those jobs are often there through people that they know or through luck or because someone else is making their writing good or because they've got the connections that gets them an interview with somebody. But then someone else, a sub-editor comes along and rewrites their writing to make it readable in whatever journal or publication that they're in you know that happens a lot let's so let's get into these things happen shall we mm, let's um so obviously you are connected to the sarah records history and lore how does your personality fit into the spirit of the label well i would say that i am quite stubborn I am quite opinionated. I am quite determined. I'm quite passionate about things. I am a feminist, obviously. It's a deviation. Um, how does my personality fit into the Sarah Records world? I'm, you know, I'm lefty leaning politically. I'm, you know, follow a lot of the same ideals that Claire and Matt did, who ran the label. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, I identified with a lot of the things that they identified with. And I thought, yeah, you seem like my kind of people. This seems like my kind of world, the kind of the spirit of the bands, the message that they were putting across the whole package to me, the DIY ethics of it. You know, I used to write a fanzine, a very bad fanzine that no one would rightly, no one would remember because I was a kid. Um, and just the whole concept of something being stuck and pasted and put together with care and love and being handmade, all of that appealed to me. So that's, that's I guess, where there's a little bit of crossover. But I certainly wouldn't want to take anything away from Claire and Matt. It's very much their baby. And I was one of thousands and thousands of people who was a fan of the label. Speaking of Matt and Claire, um, how would you describe their personality? That. But they clearly had lots of things in common and they clearly identified these in each other. And that's why they came together. And that's why they set up a label that they ran together for eight years that worked so well. And I would say that those things were, um, you know, the sense of humor. You know, they had a massive sense of humor, which I think was evident through all of the things they did and the way that they poked fun at the mainstream music industry and how they were doing stuff. You know, they were very ethical in how they did stuff. You know, the, the bands always report on how, you know, of all the labels they've ever had anything to do with, Sarah was by far and away the most ethical and responsible in terms of always paying fairly and on time and not taking advantage. And, you know, they had like a 50-50 split with all the bands, which was really unusual for a label of that size. You know, they didn't want to rip the fans off, so they never put singles on albums because they didn't want fans to buy the same songs twice and while you know the mainstream um major labels would be putting out a single on say a seven inch and a 12 inch and a tape and then a two-part cd so that fans would buy the same song effectively five times over sarah would never do that because they didn't want to keep taking advantage of fans you know so you didn't have multi-pack multi-format singles they did put out towards the end of the label they did start putting out cd singles alongside seven inches but that was simply because people started asking for them um but i don't suppose that many people actually now that i'm starting to say that i think probably people did but i was going to say i don't suppose many people brought bought both the seven inch and the cd single perhaps people did who knows um but yeah, so they tried not, they had, you know, solid morals and solid ethics. And I think those are definite factors that Claire and Matt both had in common. Well, 
what is it about Bristol that you admire? And what changes would you like to see in the city of Bristol? I live in Bristol. I am in Bristol right now. Big up the Bristol Massive. <laughs> um, I, I grew up near Bristol. Bristol was about an hour away from where I grew up. So it was the nearest, biggest place as a kid. So when I was a teenager, if I wanted to go and see a, a band or go shopping or hang out, we, you know, we'd get in a car and we'd come up to Bristol because that was the nearest place. So I always knew Bristol well. You know, when I was a teenage Sarah fan, obviously Claire and Matt lived in Bristol at the time and I used to write to them and all the rest of it. And I used to pop up to Bristol to go record shopping and hang out. And like Matt, I would meet sometimes and we'd go for a walk or we'd go for a coffee or something. And so see his side of Bristol back then. Um, but what is it about Bristol for Sarah? I guess it could have been anywhere in terms of Sarah. It could have been any city or any town. It happened to be Bristol because that's where Claire and Matt both were, where they met and where where they did this. But it could have been Oxford. It could have been uh, Peterborough. It could have been anywhere, I guess. But there was a lot going on musically, you know. A lot of only two of the Sarah bands are actually based in Bristol, but there was a lot going on in terms of venues and gigs and touring bands would come here. There's a very creative city. It still is. You know, there's lots, you know, Banksy comes from Bristol. Graffiti art is is rife here. There's lots of creativity. There's lots and lots of writers here. Someone told me last week that outside of London or somewhere, Bristol has the highest number of sci-fi and fantasy fiction writers for some reason who knew it's not a world that I'm really in but it just is another example of the level of creativity that lives in Bristol I mean sure fantasy and sci-fi books may not have a lot in common with Sarah Records but it's just an instance of different strands of creativity that exist here and find a place and it's the kind of people who are into something creative are drawn to Bristol or, or maybe Bristol brings those things out in people who knows um, maybe because you're you're surrounded by other creative people doing you know art or sculpture or making stuff and doing independent things that that then sparks something in people that makes them want to do something who knows but whatever it is Bristol does seem to attract a lot of those kinds of people Bristol now god what kind of changes would I like to see in the city well <laughs> I was thinking as you said that um, the first thing that came to mind, this is really boring, but it's transport. But that is a thing that does tie in very closely to Sarah, because um, as all good Sarah fans will know, trains and buses feature very prominently on the record labels and in the writings of Claire and Matt when they're talking about Sarah Records and in the pictures that are on the record labels and on the sleeves and whatnot. And one of the runout groups, I cannot remember it off the top of my head, but it was something like uh, Bristol demands a you know, um, a, a well-organized public transport system. Obviously, it was much, much better verbally than that. I'm looking here actually on my desk. We have these postcards that come with books that are ordered direct, which is a postcard of postcards of the Temple Meads collection that came with some of the records. And, um, you know, they celebrated Temple Meads. As someone says in the book, they made Temple Meads into their penny lane. You know, they've done for Bristol what the Beatles did for Liverpool, which is true. And there's so many people moved to Bristol because of Sarah Records, whether some of the bands did, some of the fans did, or some of the fans thought, you know, what, I'll go to Bristol Uni um, as opposed to some other city because that's where Sarah is. And I've heard that from quite a few people. Um, but what does Bristol need now? Bristol really needs its public transport sorted out because it is in an absolute mess and you cannot get from A to B. So it's boring, but it's very useful. And also it's very important culturally, because if you cannot get a bus to a gig, how are you right. supposed to go to that gig? You can't, especially as a woman and you want to get home safely. You need public transport that you can actually do that on. Otherwise, you're stuck at home and you can't go. In the, in the book, you take a deep dive into sexism and the refusal of submitting to it. Can you, can, can you explain more what you wanted your readers to take away from that part of the book? Yeah, I think a lot of people, I probably, I mean, I was sort of about 13 when I first became a fan of Sarah Records, and I probably, like a lot of 13-year-olds, wasn't that politically interested. And I think a lot of Sarah fans... And even some of the bands from talking to them weren't that politically aware at the time, because a lot of the bands were still, you know, late teenagers, early 20s themselves. Um, and they didn't necessarily pick up on all of the 
political messages and ideas that Claire and Matt had behind some of their actions. I think a lot of the politics of Sarah came from Claire and Matt themselves. But by simple virtue of having Claire as one of the two co-founders of the label, Sarah was stating its case as being, you know, a label that was, you know, sexually equal. Um, there were very, very few, in fact, there still are very, very few record labels that are either run by women or run equally by a woman. And that's still the case today. And there were very few, if any, back then in 1987, when Clara Matt started Sarah Records. That in itself is a strong feminist statement that they made. They followed that through with, you know, the, the kinds of bands that they signed with. They had a policy of not have not using imagery that objectified women in any case you know there were a lot of fanzines and other indie labels at that point that were using these um sort of 60s style images of people who look like dusty springfield with bouffanted hair and everything and, and putting these images of women on their sleeves and sarah had a strict policy of not doing anything like that and not using imagery of women that in any way objectified them or made them look as objects for that very reason and um, rightly or wrongly, they they made that stance. I, I personally think it possibly went a little bit too far the other way, that if you look at all the Sarah sleeves as a whole, the ones that do have people on have men, <laughs> but very, very few women or just they're just drawings of women. And I, possibly it went too far, but I know that Claire and Matt still, I did have this out with them during the writing of the book and the research of the book, and they still cling true to their their belief that they did the right thing. And I 100% believe it came from a good place. But so it's still very much open to interpretation as to how people feel that went down. Um, but there were lots of actions like that that they made that were very much to do with you know, not, you know, if there was a photograph being taken of a band, such as the Field Mice, for instance, which had one woman and four guys in it, not having Anne-Marie in the centre of the photo just because she's a woman and that would make it symmetrical, but having her just anywhere, having all of the band in, just in any random order, which a photographer might kind of go, oh, but it's symmetrical to put the woman in the middle. It's like, why? Why is it symmetrical? You know, the questioning things like that and just making people stop and think, oh, okay, and just stop and think about what they're doing and question whether or not it's for the right reason. Uh, when I taught informational writing to my students, one of their favorite parts of that writing unit was to learn how to put in headings, quotes, captions. This is one of the things I love about your book here. Uh, you included some fabulous tidbits, facts, quotes, along with all these images. How fun and challenging was that in terms of, you know, the design, the makeup of that part of the book? I love doing stuff like that. My background is I'm a, I'm a magazine writer. You know, I've never been a news journalist. I've never been interested in that kind of thing. But I'm a magazine writer and magazines, as I'm sure you know from reading magazines on any subject, have lots of pull out boxes. They have pull quotes, they have headlines, they have captions, they have things that funny, angle. you know, I'm not a designer, you know, the design of the book was nothing to do with me. I did work with the designer to kind of say, this is the kind of thing I do and don't want. But largely, that was a guy called Joe who went away and did an amazing job. Um, but yeah, there, there are lots of fun facts. And I very much enjoyed you know, going through the book and just random things. The fun facts kind of started. I wasn't initially doing it, but sometimes like I do an interview with somebody and, you know, a lot of what they said was interesting, but it wasn't stuff that was going to make it into the book. Or they would just have some really random thing. Like the one that springs to mind is I was talking to, I think it was Bridget Duffy from the Sea Urchins. And she obviously, Pristine Christine, the Sea Urchin song is Sarah number one. And I just said, who, who is Christine? And she said, oh, it's a song about Robert Cooksey's mum, Margaret. <laughs> it's like, okay. So his mum's called Margaret and the song's about her, but it's called Pristine Christine. And she's going, yeah. And I said, okay, you're going to have to explain that. And, uh, and basically they just had this phrase that, oh, she was a really, she was a real Pristine Christine in that she was very fussy. She liked things very neat and tidy. And so, um, so yeah, she was a pristine Christine, even though she was called Margaret. And so that's that's where the title came from. And that just, you know, narrowed that down into a into a soundbite, and that becomes a, a fun fact. Was you probably had a surplus 
of fun facts that you wanted to include, but you couldn't just because of the, the, the volume of the book. Yeah, we didn't want to have more than one per page. And there's certainly not one per page. There's you know a handful per chapter uh, because otherwise it just detracts. And like then, it you know, as a reader, there's a lot of text in this book anyway. It's 200,000 words. It's a big book. And then suddenly you're reading it and then you've got extra little bits around the page to read. And then that detracts from the flow of reading it and just becomes a bit annoying. So we were conscious of that and not wanting to do that. But we've also got a lot of pull quotes and I've made a point. So all the pull quotes that kind of stand out around the page are not quotes that have been taken from the text. They are extra quotes because yeah. just, I guess, just as Claire and Matt didn't want to resell songs to people, you know, I was having to edit so much to take out of the book that why on earth would you duplicate text? So all the pull quotes are extra text, extra quotes that somebody said that I didn't want to lose, but, you know, they just had to go somewhere. So you're sitting down, you're thinking, okay, my next book, my next book. Oh, I want to write about the history of Sarah and then some. <laughs> that must have been a monumental, like, it's a scratch like where do I even start because it's it's you know it's been documented this isn't obscure stuff so where did you start it wasn't originally going to be a book about Sarah Records this book started about 10 odd years ago I was um, a fanzine writer when I was a teenager when I was still at school and I lived in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere it was the early 90s so we had no internet we had no mobile phones we had didn't have a tv in my bedroom didn't have anything like that and i didn't have a car at this point because i couldn't drive because i was 15 and um and i used to write a, a fanzine in my bedroom and then i used to post that off to people and all the rest of it and then a couple of weeks later someone would send you a note and say here's 50p and a stamped address envelope please send me a copy of your fanzine and then you know likewise and it, would, it was a very slow process but you built friendships i've got a whole folder over there full of letters back from that day with people i recently reconnected with someone on facebook he found me he'd read the book and found me and said, like, oh, I used to write letters to you. I was like, bloody hell, you did, yeah. And uh, <laughs> like, now, now he's all grown up and you've got kids and it's just like, whoa, people change. I mean, you do in like 30 years, these things do happen. It's, it's normal. Um, so originally I was going to write a book about being a fanzine writer, like what it was like to be a girl. And I wanted to write, I'm very, very keen on the importance of bedrooms as a safe space. The bedroom is a site of cultural production. The bedroom is a space for girls to express themselves and how that's changed over the years with the internet and with the digital age and how the bedroom is no longer a safe space. So the teenage, you might be in a bedroom technically on your own, but you're not anymore because you've got the internet, you've got the phone, you've got nonstop social media, you've got webcams, you've got everything else and you're no longer on your own. You're no longer safe. Um, so I wanted to write something about that, which was how it started. And talking about my own experiences. And within that, Sarah was just a chapter because Sarah was something that I liked as a teenager, as a fanzine writer. And so I wrote about Sarah and it was just a short chapter. And then it kind of spiraled out of control a little bit because around that time, as I mentioned, I live in Bristol and I was walking past the Arnolfini Gallery um, one weekend and I noticed they had a poster outside advertising a Sarah Records weekend that was coming up. And I thought, wow, I've got I used to like Sarah Records, yeah. And I looked at it and I got myself a ticket and went along. And I hadn't really thought that much. I mean, obviously a little bit for writing this book, but not a great deal about Sarah Records in the intervening years. Um, and this must have been, God, this was about early 2014, 2015, so nearly 10 years ago. And um, I hadn't thought about Sarah for quite a long time in any great depth. And I went along and suddenly like Claire and Matt were there and Julian Henry was there playing music and, you know, the Orchids and Secret Shine and Robin Amelia were there and loads of other people. And I looked at the exhibition and I watched the film, which had just come out. And I was like, wow, this is lovely. And it just kind of brought back all these memories and kind of made me think, God, that was more than I had remembered it was. And then I went back away. I went back home and I dug out my whole like enormous envelope full of letters that Matt had sent me back in the day. And there are tons of them and postcards and drawings and buttons and all kinds of things. And it just kind of sparked this whole thing that that overflowed and um, turned into a big fat book. <laughs> so did you create an outline, a roadmap? 
No, it went through a lot of ways. I'd sat on the idea for a couple of years. I was doing other things. I've written, this is my sixth book. And I had these, there were two books before this, who which are both in the Women Who Built Bristol series. And those two books were pretty popular and were taking a lot of time. I was doing a lot of talks. And then the COVID lockdown happened. And this is true of a lot of people kind of say that the lockdown forced them to do other things. And so like everybody, I was stuck in my house for a year or so. And I suddenly thought maybe this is the time. I'd kind of sat on this idea of this Sarah book for maybe two years, two or three years by this point. And I thought maybe this is the time to kind of start putting my finger out and actually doing something. You know, all the people that I want to speak to are also stuck in their houses, unable to do anything or go anywhere. They are a captive audience, literally. And so I started contacting people. And amazingly, I guess they were all equally bored of talking to their own families. And they all just said yes. And I started having these chats multiple times a week with different indie pop stars. And it was it sparked this book, essentially. What were some of the challenges in putting this all together? Well, I, the bloody transcriptions, Jesus Christ. I would gladly <laughs> never transcribe anything again. So I did nearly 130 interviews for the book. They were mostly done over Zoom or the phone. Um, and so then I had to transcribe them. And if you think most of the interviews lasted two to three hours on average, and it takes roughly three times as long to transcribe something. So that's three. That's a roughly 12 hours per interview, oh maybe longer. And then times that by 130. And that's a heck of a lot of time. And it's also a heck of a lot of words to then sift through. I mean, obviously, I'm transcribing my own stuff. So I did do some editing as I went along and kind of thought, I'm never going to use that in the book and didn't bother typing it up. Or here's this just chit chat about, you know, what a nice walk they went on this morning. Obviously, I don't need to type that up. So there was, you know, I didn't type every single word, but um, it's still a lot of words. And then you finish that and you've got maybe like a, a 15 page document of all the things that they've said. And then you have to sift through and maybe just find three quotes from that that you're going to use in the book because you've got 130 interviews and you've got um, everyone's saying stuff and it's all interesting, but you can't use it all because then the book would be 10 times the size that it currently is and it's already much too big. So yeah, you have to sift it down. And so I just kind of, I started writing the book as I went along. It did go through various different structural forms. Initially I had what well, at the time I thought was a brilliant idea, but now I think was insane, but they didn't come to it, which was, uh, which was that I was going to do the book in um, a 24 hour chapter format and each chapter would be an hour of the day so it would start for instance at say 8 a.m with Claire and Matt waking up and opening the post and the experience of the post and how important post was and then 9 a.m they are I don't know reading the music press and all the rest of it and 10 a.m they're going to a record shop because they're trying to sell and, and so on and so on and so on and then in the evening it would be set in uh, I don't know the Fleece and Firkin in Bristol and it's a heavenly gig and then later on it's 12 o'clock outside the Fleece and Firkin and someone's trying to sell t-shirts or get the money back in and, you know, all the rest of it. But this, and initially I thought, this is a genius idea. I'm so clever. But, uh, and I did start writing it that way, but quite quickly realized this was actually a terrible idea. Here's my question. I've never seen any of those bands in the States perform okay. live. You discuss and talk about which is one of my favorite chapters, um, the concert experiences. For example, uh, when the orchids were on the road and they hit this slick ice and almost got in that serious accident. And then you talk about the Christmas shows. Why did you feel compelled to bring the reader into that concert experience again? And... Can you tell us a concert or two that truly stood out for you? Okay. I mentioned, I mean, concerts get three chapters in the book. You get the concerts in Bristol, you get concerts elsewhere in Britain, and then concerts in other parts of the world. Um, I think going to see a band live 
is one of the top two most important things about being a fan of a band, along with buying their records or listening to their music. So, you know, if you're a fan of a band, you want to buy their records and listen to them at home over and over again because you love the music. And then you hear that that band is coming to play somewhere near where you live. You, you're going to, you know, pull your money and go and go and see them if you can, because that's what you do when you're a fan of something, especially when you're a kid. So that was a no brainer to me. Of course, bands were going to live chapters were going to be in there. And also it's a really key thing for bands. You know, some of the bands hated it. Brighter really hated playing live and some of the other bands did too. But for most bands, they loved it or they loved going on tour. They loved that um, standing on stage and whether it's 12 people, one of whom's their mum, or it's a packed room um, that know all the words to your songs, who isn't going to love that? That kind of instant feedback. Yeah, we love you and we love what you're doing and it's great. Who everyone would love that, of course they would, just as everyone would love hearing their song played on the radio. Um, so that's why I did it, um, because it it didn't occur to me not to do it. Um, and a gig that I went the first Sarah band that I went to see was Heavenly, supported by the McTells at the Fleece and Firkin in Bristol. A lot of things for me have happened at the Fleece and Firkin in Bristol because it's near where I live, it's near where I grew up. And it's a great venue. It still goes. I've been to many gigs there even recently and it has not changed in any way, shape or form apart from the name. It's now just called The Fleece. And um, it's a cracking venue. And I went to see Heavenly there. I didn't see many Sarah bands back in the day because I wasn't very old. I was about 15 at this point. I couldn't drive. So I was dependent. Um, Bristol is about an hour, hour and a half drive from where I live. So I was dependent on finding someone who was a bit older and who had a car who could drive to get there. So that in itself is a challenge because most of my friends were my age and weren't interested in this. They were interested in chart music and take that and new kids on the block and stuff like that. They had no interest in fanzines or indie bands. But I did, as a result of that, I did once get Heavenly to play a gig in a pub up the road from my house in a place called Yeovil. And um, that was just amazing. I think I was about 16 at the time. And I remember contacting Matt at Sarah and saying, how much would it cost to get Heavenly? To and I only know this for a fact because I, as a conveniently for me as someone writing a book about this as a teenager I kept very detailed diaries of everything right. that I did and yeah. so it documents this day in August 94 I think it was when I spoke to Matt and said what would it cost to get Heavenly to come and do a gig in Yeovil and he told me and then I um spoke to someone else I knew who put on gigs and said okay right this is what it would cost and they made it happen and so suddenly Heavenly supported by a couple of local bands did a gig at the Skittle Alley of the pub up the road from my house which was amazing I mean yeah. that was that felt quite empowering as a 16 I mean I probably didn't recognize it at the time but looking back that's a pretty bold strong thing to have done so yeah I have this vision of the audience and their response to the music while being played on stage. But again, I've never seen any of these bands perform here in the Bay Area, San Francisco, anything like that. Um, let's go one step further. So what was the response from the audience? Was there a lot of dancing? Was there just singing? Was it all, all of the above? I think... I think, well, when I saw Heavenly at the Fleece in Bristol, I remember it being pretty busy. And this, you can remember, this is like 30 odd years ago. I remember it being pretty busy. It was quite full. But I think it was largely a lot of people stood fairly still, just kind of slightly shuffling slightly from side to side while holding a pint. I think there was a lot of that going on. And I think when they did the gig in Yeovil, I don't think it was the best attended gig in the world. I don't know that it was in any way full. <laughs> I think it was quite lowly attended. Um, but it was fun. And it was, I just remember it as being a fun night. I don't, I mean, I certainly would not have had the guts to dance. I'm sure I would have stood nervously at the side and just kind of very quietly moved very slowly from side to side, hoping no one noticed um, because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. <laughs> 
but um yeah I just it was fun it was just a good atmosphere it's nice why wouldn't you want to go and see there's a lovely quote from Beth Arzi who was in Aberdeen in the book and she just says um which I think is one of my favorite quotes in the whole book and she says she wishes she had a time machine so that she could go back and see Heavenly for the first time again and I think that sums up the whole thing for me that quote it's such a lovely quote and it sums up the whole spirit of Sarah and that world for me and speaking of that world um it almost seemed like it was on its own island because here in the States, I mean, you, you live, I told you how I learned of the Sarah Records music is because of the, the guy at the record shop. It wasn't well known here in the States. So did it feel like this little quiet secret? Um, it did and it didn't. I got to know Sarah because of my older brother who's about five years older than me and he was really into indie music and he had a fanzine and put out a flexi and he introduced me to some of these bands and that sparked my interest and then I used to rifle through his records and that's how I got to know the bands and then I started buying my own records and it went off from there and I used to read you know NME and Melody Maker and listen to John Peel and everything and so these bands every so often would crop up in there never very favorable not on John Peel but in the music press they were never very favorably written about there weren't really interviews or anything but you'd get like the odd review or a live review or a you might get a small piece in a in a you know new act section or a quarter page about something you didn't get a lot and then you'd read it and you go oh no they've got it wrong or they haven't understood it and but it felt like a badge of like I understand this I know that they've got it wrong and of course I didn't understand it I was like 14 and I've got a clue but it kind of felt like your thing it felt like something that you owned I remember when um it's not in the Sarah world, but I remember the band Suede when they first emerged and when they were still on Nude and they were brand new and The Drowners first came out and I heard it on on chart show on ITV and I loved it. Like, oh my God, this is great. And I saved up like four pounds so I could go and buy the 12 inch because it was beautifully packaged and I had to save up for a week or two to go and buy it. And I played it over and over and over again and I loved it. And then Metal Mickey came out and it was still fairly quiet and then Animal Nitrate. And then suddenly they were in the top 40 and people at school knew who they were. And I was just like, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken that suddenly other people, people whose taste I did not respect and who I didn't value, they knew who this band were that I loved and adored. And that kind of spoilt it for me. Um, so th I think there's certainly something about being a fan of something that's underground or that's makes you feel special because you know that this thing exists and most people don't know it exists. I think there's definitely something that makes you feel special just by just by that knowledge. There are, there are so many of those singles, albums that I truly love. There are two, and I lost one, and I have one sitting right behind me. So one was Unholy Soul by the Orchids. The other one, <clears throat> St. Christopher, Man, I Could Scream. Mm-hmm. I could listen to those two out. I mean, again, a lot of those albums, but I, these two in particular really, really, really speak to my heart. Got to ask you, is there one or two that you just go, oh, I would take that on a desert island? I would. I think there's a song by the Harvest Ministers called You Do My World, The World of Good, which is so simple. It's probably not simple at all if you know how to construct a song. But to me, in my ignorance, it's so simple. It is so beautiful. It is so kind of just gentle and otherworldly, but so romantic and heartfelt. And I could listen to that over and over and over again. And it's just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, I would recommend that to anyone i remember when i first heard it it was on a mixtape that a friend of my brother's had made for me and um it just suddenly popped up and i was just like and i remember listening to it it was on a tape i was listening to it on my walkman i had my headphones on and i was like wow and i think there's something about when you hear something through headphones as well because you haven't got the other noise in the room or the street noise or anything it's just going directly into your brain and you're just like wow, this is like all I can hear and it's so special and beautiful. And it was just stunning. I absolutely love that song. Two more questions here. I, I would also pick, um, I would also pick I Fell in Love Last Night by Heavenly because Heavenly are my number one Sarah band. And I, I'm are sorry that okay. that's an obvious thing to say. I'm sorry that's the obvious band to choose, but it is what it is. 
And because um, that was my entry into all of this was Tallulah Gosh that led me to Heavenly, to led me to everything else. Um, and I've now since got to know Rob and Amelia really well and Pete and Kathy, and that's a, a real honour. Um, but I Fell in Love Last Night was one of the earliest Heavenly songs. And I think for that reason, it, it strikes a chord. But also you can listen to it today and it doesn't sound like it's 30 something years old. It sounds like it's a, a classic pop song. So gonna uh, read a quote here by Pete here. Uh, I, I uh, this is uh, towards the very end, actually. He said, there's just something about that world, what it represents, the aesthetic message that it's putting out that I think is still relevant. And I think it's timeless. So my question for you, Jane, is how would you say this is indicative of the label? But also your writing. Oh gosh. Oh, well, I would I would not have the nerve to say whether my writing is timeless or not. That isn't not, no, not answering that. But that's a quote from Pete Perfides, who's a music writer. And I saw him, I think last year, and I was chatting to, to him and to Bob Stanley after an event. And we were talking about Sarah Records and we were talking about this kind of thing and like the gentleness and how he would champion um you know, being how it's more important rather than all those kind of bands and people who put on all this bravado and kind of pretend to be something they're not, how there's a lot more honour and respect in the bands like, you know, the Field Mice, like Gentle Despite, you know, like Brighter, whoever, who are, who they are, who don't, you know, who there's a lot of bravery in being gentle and in being, you know, heartfelt. And then this descended into a conversation. There's a program, there's a reality show called like SAS, Who Dares Wins. I don't know if you have that. Or I'm sure you have something similar. It's like a survivor. And it's like, you know, someone like Bear Grylls or someone in full camo, you know, who's well known for being an army guy and for being tough and for like, you know, wrestling a bear with his bare hands and like ripping its head off. And then he gets these, you know, TV personalities and soap stars and makes them survive in the wilderness. And whoever lasts the longest is the winner. And Bob Stanley and Pete Perfides and I were having this conversation about how if there was an indie pop version of like SAS, who dares wins? And uh, and whether like Bobby Ratton, of course he couldn't because he's a vegan, so he would not be able to cope with ripping a bear's head off. But do you know what I mean? Like... Uh, uh, classic people from the Sarah Records stable and how it was much more important to have people like that and much more impressive to have people like that. And obviously we wouldn't make them do an SAS who dares wins, but, you know, to show that bravery and how bravery isn't to do with, you know, fighting a bear and winning. It's to do with putting wearing your heart on your sleeve and not caring that someone calls you a wimp or calls you fae or kind of other insults. And it's, that's what's brave. It's nothing. Bravery is nothing to do with going head to head with a bear in the wilderness. Bravery is about putting your feelings out there and not caring that you get ripped to pieces by the music press or whoever. Okay. So with this release of the book, and you've done some discussions and some talks about it, how has this experience been therapeutic for you? Therapeutic, gosh. Well, I guess it's the culmination of three years, or it, only three years. It feels like three decades, <laughs> but it's three years. This book has been in the making. So I guess it's it's amazing to finally see it. It felt like three years is the longest it's ever taken me to write any book. As I said, this is my sixth. And normally I'm much, much quicker than this, but it is a massive book. Um, and I guess so it's 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 just a relief that it's finally finished and it is out there. I guess that's the therapy of it. Um, I don't know. I would say it's been therapeutic to write. Um, it's certainly been enjoyable to write and it's been, it's been really stressful at times as well, like anything is. Um, but it has also been very rewarding. I'm, you know, again, in a very British sense, I would say, I'd nervously say I was very pleased with it. But again, I don't want to say that because that comes across then as bumptious and full of myself. And that's not a, not a quality that is good to have. But also I do think increasingly as I get older that it is important for people, especially women, to say, yeah, I've done actually a good thing. This is a good thing, uh, you know, and to own that rather than going, oh, no, you shouldn't say nice things about this. But actually to go, yeah, no, it is a good book. Um, and to be proud of that rather than shy away from comments, compliments. Um, so, yeah, um, we did. We had a launch event in Bristol about a week or two ago at Rough Trade and Paul and Gemma from Blue Boy got back together and they did a really beautiful half hour set, which is now on YouTube as of yesterday, oh. if anyone wants to watch it. So do a search for Blue Boy Bristol Sarah 
something like that. And it comes up or it's on my Facebook group that these things happen. Facebook group. I've just posted a link to it today, um, which is really beautiful. And it's like half an hour and it's gorgeous. And I, you know, defy anyone not to love it. And um, they will hopefully be doing well they will actually be doing a show again with two other Sarah bands in London in January but that's not actually public knowledge yet but you know who cares it will be in a week or two um so that's really really exciting and so things like that I find really uh rewarding and really satisfying because often I mean anyone whatever anyone who writes a book whatever the book is about whether it's about trains or record labels or I don't know a novel or whatever it is will tell you that writing the book is one thing but then the hardest bit is actually promoting and selling it that is and I've been doing a lot I've probably been boring people to tears but I've been doing a lot of interviews a lot of podcasts a lot of radio appearances writing a lot of features for different magazines and uh, and whatnot I'm really really pushing this book because you have to and then I'm continually surprised when people go oh wow I've only just heard about this I love Sarah Records and you think wow how can you only have just heard about this I've been pouring everyone tears but that kind of then reinforces why it is worth keeping on doing it because who knows someone might listen to this podcast but they don't listen to any of the others and so, you know so who knows where people get their information from there are too many choices these days of places to get information so um so yeah so there's a lot of that that goes on and that's largely where I am with the book. So I still feel like I'm very much involved with the book and creating the book. Although the book now physically exists, there's another level of the process, which is promoting it and talking about it and getting it out there and hopefully getting people interested enough that they pick up a copy and want to read it. So that's the next challenge. It's all very well writing a book, but what's the point if no one reads it? So, Do you have any books outside of this book that you would recommend for people to read? It could be any book or any albums do just for fun any albums i have i may have thought that you were going to ask me this question so i may have some visual aids just here um one of my favorite albums that came out i think came out like a month or two ago is this absolutely beautiful record which is by the lilac time and it's called, oh, I always get the name wrong. It's called Dance Till the Stars Come Home or something like Stephen, that. Stephen Duffy, Lilac Time? Stephen Duffy from the Lilac Time. Look how beautiful this sleeve is. I've got a print of this sleeve and have it hanging in my living room downstairs. It's just gorgeous. Um, I'm a lifelong fan of Stephen Duffy and the Lilac Time, as anyone who's listened to anything I've said in the last month can confirm because he seems to keep popping up. Stephen Duffy very kindly gave a, a endorsement quote for the back of the book as well because he's a good chap um so that's an absolutely gorgeous album everyone should listen to it i'm sure it's available to stream in places if you don't want to buy a physical record but why wouldn't you i hate streaming music but anyway what else oh my favorite album of last year i mentioned i loved suede earlier i only loved suede up until the point that bernard butler left the band as soon as bernard oh. butler left the band i lost all interest with immediate effect and i've never bought a record since but I have continued to follow Bernard Butler um, in all the many other things that he's done. And this album, which came out last year, which is the, comp the um, collaboration he did with Jesse Buckley for All the Days That Tear Our Heart, is just one of my... I listen to this, God, so much. It's beautiful. It's a gatefold album. Oh. It's just lovely. It's, um, it's so divine. Um, I've listened to it endlessly. It's just absolutely magical. I bought tickets to go and see him. In two weeks, and I'm so excited. I'm going to go all the way to Brighton to see him. Can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. Reading that aren't relevant. Um, movies. I have a very low attention span at the moment. So um, I'm not very good at watching movies, but I have been re-watching Black Books. Do you know Black Books? Mm -mm. Oh, it's brilliant. It's a sitcom. It's a British sitcom from maybe end of the 90s, early 2000s. And it's set in a bookshop in London about, and it's got Bill Bailey, Dylan Moran and Tamsin Grieg in it um, early on in their careers. And it's got lots of cameos from their friends who are people like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and oh, Peter Sefinowitz okay. and lots of people who you know from other stuff. But at the time they were just kind of emerging names. But back then they were just, you know, nobody, not nobody, but they were like on the up. Whereas now, you know, like, Simon Pegg's in films with Tom Cruise, whereas then he was just kind of, you know, doing little guest parts in his friend's show. It's just this really, I've been reading Graham Linehan's memoir, and Graham Linehan is the scriptwriter of sitcoms like Father Ted and Black Books and everything. And reading this prompted me to go back and rewatch that. And there's a brilliant, <laughs> there was, 
there's one where this guy Manny, who's this kind of you know slightly uh, long-haired guy who has a job as an accountant, even though he really shouldn't do, and he's very very stressed, and so he gets the little book of calm, and then he accidentally swallows the little book of calm, and then turns into Jesus, basically kind of walking around, kind of <laughs> issuing issuing uh, bon mots and good good wishes to people, and it is very funny. It's not when I tell you. But everyone should basically hunt out black books and at least watch the very first episode, which is the Little Book of Calm episode. And it's absolutely fantastic. So I've been watching and enjoying that. I've been watching a lot of sitcoms lately because I have very short attention spans and I don't want anything too challenging to watch. I recently rewatched all of Sex and the City series one to six, um, which was more enjoyable than I thought it would be. I hadn't seen that for decades and thought mm, maybe it's, it's not stood up to the test of time, but actually it is still pretty watchable. So what's, ne what's next for Jane Duffus? What is next for Jane Duffus? Um, well, I have three books on the go at the moment, which are all very different to the Sarah one. I do have... Say that again. So I have an idea, and this isn't one of the books that I'm writing, but it's an idea that I've had bubbling away for a while, about doing a book about the record label L. Do you remember L Records? I should, but I don't. Do So it's popular. I think a lot of people who like Sarah would also like Elle, and there is definitely some crossover there. So Elle Records was the brainchild of Mike Allway, who was part of, you know, Blanco y Negro and Cherry Red and all that kind of stuff. And it was this astonishing, it only lasted for five or six years. It was similar time of time to when Sarah started, but it was very different. It was this very theatrical, very constructed, very created um, label where often he would have an idea for a band or he would spend more and it was very visually beautiful and he would very Arcadian and he would get this photo shoot done and he would end up spending more money on the photo shoot for the album than he would on even recording the album. And he had everything topsy-turvy. And I know some of the people who are in, like Jessica Griffin, for instance, who was or still is the would-be goods, they're still going. Um, and she was on the label and she had this beautiful, beautiful, very kind of English received pronunciation voice and just stunning and would write songs and sing songs about sort of London and very English tropes. And there was another performer called Anthony Adverse and Louis Philippe. And they all had these extraordinary made up stage names that were very theatrical and crafted. And it's just it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And so I'm contemplating doing that next, but I might need a bit of a break because the Sarah book is just so overwhelming that I might have to take a little bit of a break and get some headspace before I start on another massive project. Jane Duffus, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, there are so many bits to that book that, I mean, I, we could go on and on and talk about the book. I'm glad it's being honored and celebrated and, and received in a way that obviously warms your heart as it should. And um, congratulations on the book. And again, thank you so much for taking your time for this uh, deeper insight into it and really giving me a, a better understanding of kind of what that world was like. And again, all I knew it was just going to that record shop and going home and listening to it. And that's all the exposure I had. So this is really nice to bring that here. Yeah, looking forward to what comes out next. And how do people get a hold of this book? Ah, yes. Good question. So um, in the UK, we're trying to encourage people to buy direct from the publisher, which is Tangent. So if you just go to Tangent Books, you can find it on there easily enough. Um, also, it's being stocked by Rough Trade. And I mean, you can go in any bookshop if you like and ask them to order it in. Um, you can get it at all the online places that you would expect. But we would kind of urge people not to because obviously retailers take such a massive cut for themselves that there's not really a lot left for anyone else. Um, in the States, we've got distribution with Rough Trade because obviously the postage costs from the UK are massive and we don't want people to have to pay that. So if you're in the States, you can go to Rough Trade in New York on their website and you can get that delivered straight to you and elsewhere in the world I think you will have to go to the online giant that we don't like to talk about but um, for now I think that is currently your your best option but yeah you should be able to get it pretty much anywhere so good luck and if you can't let me know and I'll see what we can do with the spirit of the label and the spirit of your personality I can see why this kind of worked out in your favor this is uh 
it all makes sense to me. So thank you again for the taking the time. Oh, Take care, everyone. My name is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. Tune in for more details regarding this event and subsequent.